God, those communists are amazing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him, Jaren, he, him, and our guests tonight are Iraj, he, him, and Lima, she, her. How are you guys doing? Oh, good comrade, thank you. Doing great, thanks for having us on. Thank you for coming on. And so tonight we'll be talking about Afghanistan. And uh, I was a little hesitant to even do an episode on this topic because, one, I just don't feel particularly informed on it, but mostly because everyone in the leftist space, every podcast and every you know, media outlet that has any kind of leftist slant to it has been talking a lot about Afghanistan. And I wasn't sure if we were really going to be able to do it justice or say anything very original. Um, but now that we have some guests here who know a little more about the topic, hopefully we'll be able to shed some light on it that maybe people haven't heard before. Um, so if you could, I know like just before we actually started the recording, Lima, you gave us like a little bit about your background. But if you want to just kind of reiterate, what is your background as far as like regarding Afghanistan to begin with? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a first generation Afghan immigrant. I'm in Canada. So we moved here when I was nine years old, but mm. I was born in uh, Quetta, Pakistan, which is quite close to the Afghan-Pakistani border. And we went back and forth quite a bit. Oh, cool. uh, my hometown's Kandahar. That's where my dad's from. Mm-hmm. But we went back and forth quite a bit until we moved here. So yeah, that's kind of uh, uh, a lot of my formative years were spent there. And uh, we moved here when, what was it, 2003? So mm-hmm. like at the heyday and the peak of all the things that were happening post-2001 U.S. invasion. And, as, and I'm sure as much as Iraj and every other Afghan, we have very close connections to, not, even, even as diaspora members, to what's happening right now, but um, have also been directly impacted by all that's happened over the span of 40 years, directly mm-hmm. and indirectly, uh, via family and, and demographics and ethnic group affiliation. So that's kind of my direct connection to the topic has always been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And how about you, Raj? Are you, um, are you also from Afghanistan originally? Yeah. Uh, I'm from Afghanistan, born in the evil communist regime era. Um, <laughs> yeah, I spent like 10 years of my life there before moving to the UK as refugees displaced by war. And I've been here since pretty much 20 years in the OG colonizer land. But yeah, that's my background and very similar experiences to Comrade Lima. Very strong connections uh, to both my current country uh, and the working class in this country and, of course, back home in Afghanistan as well. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, thank you guys both for joining us. I really appreciate it. So I'll just get to some of the notes that I have here. And then, again, you guys can fill in the gaps, uh, whatever I'm missing. And please don't hesitate to correct me if I'm wrong about anything. So for anyone who's listened to our, our podcast before, this will probably not be an entirely new or surprising pattern of events. You know, the U.S. intervening in a country that has no rifle business in, arming, funding far-right groups to fight communists wreaking havoc for the populace there in the process, and then, you know, becoming entangled in a longer-term war and or a project of nation-building as a result. And the entire time, just profiting off of this entire cycle by exploiting the resources there or, or cheap labor and, you know, making U.S. businesses or military contractors richer as well. Um, so again, especially with the recent episodes we've done on Cuba and Nicaragua, I think this would be a very sort of familiar story for our listeners. But uh, so I guess we should just start off, the first section I have here to get to would just be supporting the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets. And I could just start off talking about Operation Cyclone. It was the code name for the United States CIA program to arm and finance the Afghan Mujahideen in Afghanistan from 1979 to 89, prior to and during the military intervention by the USSR in support of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. So the Mujahideen were also supported by Britain's MI6, who conducted separate covert actions. The program leaned heavily towards supporting militant Islamic groups, 
including groups with jihadist ties in neighboring Pakistan, rather than the other less ideological Afghan resistance groups that had also been fighting the Soviet-oriented Democratic Republic of Afghanistan administration since before the Soviet intervention. Operation Cyclone was one of the longest and most expensive covert CIA operations ever undertaken. Funding officially began with $695,000 in mid-1979, was increased dramatically to 20 to 30 million per year in 1980, and rose to 630 million per year in 1987. Described as the, quote, biggest bequest to any third world insurgency, the first CIA-supplied weapons were antique British Lee-Enfield rifles shipped out in December of 1979, but by September 86, the program included U.S.-origin state-of-the-art weaponry such as FIM-92 Stinger surface-to-air missiles, some 2,300 of which were ultimately shipped into Afghanistan. Funding continued, albeit reduced, after the 1989 Soviet withdrawal as the Mujahideen continued to battle the forces of President Mohammad Najibullah's army during the Afghan Civil War, 89-92. So just sort of a very quick primer on Operation Cyclone. And you can see that's already very reminiscent of what we're seeing today. You know, obviously everyone is giving Biden shit for leaving the Taliban a whole bunch of weapons and everything, and essentially arming them as the U.S. is pulled out of Afghanistan. Yeah, so just to your last point, I think Taliban uh, now has more military aircrafts than a third of NATO, which is crazy mm -hmm. to think about. Yeah. And like the, the whole cycle of events that's transpired and where Afghanistan is today raises so many questions. Like, I guess one of the questions for me is, when has the US ever left 85 billion worth of uh, weapons, military gear anywhere before? And mm -hmm. what's been the purpose of doing it today? Because they had no reason to make a rushed exit. Like the Doha talks that were taking place, the you know, so-called peace talks that Lima knows a lot more details on uh, than I do, but uh, they were the Taliban were telling them, "Look, like take your time uh, because we don't want to cause a panic." And especially when uh, Taliban had surrounded uh, Kabul, the capital city, they told uh, the Americans, "Look, like take your time. We don't want to cause a panic. We're in no rush. We're not going to invade the capital. Just make sure everything is secure." And you know, within hours of their message to the US, the puppet president, Ashraf Ghani, had bolted out of uh, the country and went into Tajikistan, allegedly with so much money and cash that he couldn't carry it all <laughs> onto the plane. So, Unbelievable. Uh, exactly. So then the whole incident with the airport that we all saw and witnessed for days on end. Right. Uh, again, Taliban told the US, you know, you can take security of the airport and US was unwilling to. And eventually, obviously, a terrorist attack took place that took many, many lives, including US soldiers. And this kind of allowed the US to bring in the NATO buddy, Turkey, into the frame and get the Taliban to ask Turkey for assistance in running security operations mm -hmm. in the airport. Uh, not only Turkey, but also Qatar, which is closely tied to Turkey and to the US. US has a military base in Qatar and over 10,000 soldiers. And so, you know, these are many, many different questions that keep me up at night, so to speak. Uh, because yeah. we, we won't really know the answers to these until maybe years gone by and then we look back and we think, oh, okay, so this was the reasons why you went in. Because at the end of the day, like all of this is, as Lenin wrote all those years ago, imperialism. It's pushing mm -hmm. uh, Western capital, especially into new markets and extracting, as you were saying early in your introduction, extracting resources, getting cheap labor. So 
we'll see we'll, we'll see what happens um but yeah like in terms of the history of afghanistan i think you covered probably the most significant contribution of america certainly in the past yeah. decades and where it all began but there is uh, a little bit more to it if we were to go back a few decades in terms of the british influence which has kind of escaped a lot of political discourse uh, because just a uh, real quick mm-hmm. just to touch on that point interestingly enough i found an article i didn't include anything from it because it was a very long article and it's not really relevant to the time period that we're discussing tonight but I did find an article on um, Marxist.org written by Friedrich Engels. It's just called Afghanistan. You can find it on Marxist.org, Afghanistan by Friedrich Engels. And it's very similar to the modern day story. And he describes how Afghanistan at the time, this is in the 1800s, operated as basically like a feudal agrarian land. And he talks about the British invasion of the country and how they felt confident that they had the people under control there and they withdrew most of their troops. And then soon after they lost control when the people decided they didn't want to be ruled by a bunch of white European infidels. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting and a very distinct parallel to what we're today. But um, continue. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think that's probably a good point to continue off in terms of that period of history, because it is important. And there's many important historical figures from that period, which you know, Liba knows more than I do about. So I'll probably divert to her on this. Pass it off when it's convenient. Eh? Um, <laughs> just kidding. But I think it's uh, this conversation is really important with regards to positionality and uh, the the document that you referenced, Mike. Actually, I read it um, by Ingalls, and, and it, he references the Great Game, which is kind of the original sort of battle over Afghanistan, and not only Afghanistan but that region mm-hmm. uh, between the British Empire and Tsarist Russia. And to see that kind of replicated over decades is what we're seeing right now. And Iraj spoke in depth about, uh, and you guys have mentioned as well, about Biden and him getting a lot of shit internally for for uh, what's being kind of uh, portrayed as a, as a fumbling of a withdrawal. But mm-hmm. what's missing from the discourse and something Iraj and I and other Afghan comrades and Afghans in general have been trying to kind of clarify is the very intentional way in which uh, things are unfolding, particularly particularly the, uh, and I'd call it, like I'd frame it as the ushering in of Taliban as the new kind of de facto puppet regime that will be protecting U.S. hegemonic interests in the region. Um, and to kind of get a better understanding of that, you kind of, because it's such a long drawn out history, even just looking at the Doha peace processes that were, that commenced last February, I believe February of 2020, was a kind of bilateral agreement that was signed solely by the Taliban and the United States. So even the puppet regime that, you know, it's the Americans have sustained for 2021 odd years weren't welcome um, at those talks at all. So it was kind of a clandestine, not kind of fully a clandestine uh, agreement um, that, you know, without give and takes between the U.S. and Taliban, promises made, let's say some of the uh, main pillars of that agreement, original agreement were that, for example, the Taliban wouldn't let Al-Qaeda and other anti-U.S. kind of groups and actors have access to their territory course, citing the events of 9-11 and the aftermath of that, which was the war on terror. Um, there was an agreement of mass uh, release of Talib prisoners, which took place. And all of these points were agreed to without the input of the legitimate, 
really, uh, albeit puppet, but still legitimate Afghan government. And they were only ushered in um, afterwards, much later, maybe a year or so afterwards to kind of be like, hey, this is what we agreed on. Uh, you don't really have a choice or say in it. This is how it's going to unfold. And that's exactly what's really happened. Because if we think about how quickly the country fell or how quickly the puppet regime fell, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around because it's so intentional and, and how deliberate it was in the ushering of a new actor that will continue to, in, in premise and, and practice and theory, uh, we'll see how things unfold. I mean, this is all like kind of anticipation on our end. We don't really know what's going to happen, but uh, still try to protect U.S. hegemonic interests in the region. And the, U, the Taliban got what it wanted out of you know, the struggle or its perceived struggle over the past 20 years, which is to be legitimate state actor in the country. And the U.S. will still have what it uh, what it intentionally or initially went in for, which is to have um, control over or not only the country in particular, but it's the sphere and to offset the potential threats or perceived threats that is posed to it and its empire and its allies by Iran, China and Russia. So I think the Doha talks in particular don't get a lot of uh, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think it's critical when thinking about why things have happened so quickly, why the Ameri- American, I keep saying American, but it's definitely a Freudian slip, the Afghan National Defense Forces and Security kind of surrendered without much of a fight in most provinces and major centers, because it was like Iraj mentioned, they've num- their numbers are about between 150 to 300,000, and they received about $4 billion annually in assistance from the United States and other NATO member states in terms of logistics and funding and training, etc. So and I mentioned, and, I, and I'm emphasizing this point because I've seen a lot of not only general liberal or even right wing, but a lot of leftist folks uh, frame this uh, as as a victory for mm-hmm. the Afghan people and then and, and that the Taliban is a resistance group. And that's completely false and ahistorical. To do that is kind of uh, really diminishing the origins of the group, which we can definitely delve into. And its emergence from the remnants of the original Mujahideen. Um, it absolves a lot of state actors, uh, the U.S., uh, Saudis, Pakistan, of their role in the cultivation of the group. And uh, really, it's a very unforgiving picture of the actual resistance that Afghans have put up against reactionary groups, whether that be ordinary Afghans or formal political actors such as the um, PDPA party and the Democratic uh, Republic of Afghanistan back in the 70s, which is kind of when all these things started in modern history anyway, right? So right. yeah, I just wanted to uh, flag that critical point. I know I made a lot of points and I did that intentionally so we can break off into little tendons yeah. depending on where you want to go from there. Yeah, well, I mean, Touching on one of the things that you said, the next section that I had in my notes here was just talking about the formation of the Taliban itself, you know, harping on that same thing that I was saying in the intro about the U.S. funding far-right groups to fight communists. Again, this is a very familiar pattern, and Islamists in particular have always been U.S. and U.K. allies when fighting communists. Um, They used them to fight leftists and nationalists in Egypt in the early 20th century. They used them to fight Mossadegh in Iran, um, to fight Assad in the 80s, to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan, obviously. And they used them to fight Russia and Chechnya. They used them to fight Saddam during sanctions. They used them to fight against the Egyptian people after Mubarak fell. And most recently against Assad in Syria and Iraq. So history repeats itself. What's up, Darren? Go ahead. So again, I, I am ultimately going to give the same disclaimer that Mike did, is that I'm going to defer to our wonderful guests here. Um, because what I know about the Middle East is, is definitively by proxy. Um, you know, I've been in the Imperial Corps here my entire life. But, you know, I think there is sort of an answer to why why the U.S. would leave so many weapons to the Taliban. 
And I think the only real thing that I could flesh out based on what I do know is, you know, when we go to war in a place like the Middle East, which, you know, especially Af- Afghanistan, because it was so central in the Silk Road, it isn't just resources gartering for its trade. We want to have access to some of the most valuable geography in the world. And it's, it's interesting, too, to see that China's new Silk Road initiative is starting now. They're investing like $900 billion into you know, the new Silk Road. So what we're about to see is a bidding war over Afghanistan. And the U.S.'s goal consistently in the Middle East is not to nation build or bring democracy or chase a boogeyman. The intention is permanent instability. So that's why when you, in my mind, when you see a flip-flop like with the Taliban, it's not so surprising to me. The, the goal is to make no sense. The goal is to keep the people in a permanent state of disillusionment, instability, fear, all of it, because it makes it hard to mobilize for a, a real movement that could help the people. And as far as why the Taliban, you know, we touched on it, but religious fundamentalism and capitalism fuel each other. So you know, of course, we're going to pick something that is fundamental in nature. Even here in the U.S., fundamental Christians serve a pseudo same purpose is their focus is on this esoteric idea of how people should act for their betterment instead of a material analysis of how people should act for their betterment. It's a great way to get people to focus on shit that just doesn't matter. So, you know, you can control a group better if they're focusing on God instead of the betterment of the Afghan people or the Iraqi people, or the Syrian people, or whatever. And it it even shows over here in the U.S. Like, we bailed out Lockheed Martin in 1971, and then after the 20-year Afghan war, they came out like bandits, and we still subsidized them. So not only did they get our tax money up front, they made tons of money off the war, and then gave all of it to the Taliban, which is ultimately going to probably manifest in further conflict in the region. And I guarantee they're going to make further profits off of that. It's an investment strategy for the corporate entities that run the country that I live in at the cost of the country that both of you had to flee from. What did you have, Ward? I want to expand on um, Jaron's point about like the purpose of U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and how close it is to China's One Belt, One Road initiative. And um, this is a video anybody can find on YouTube. It's from Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was the right hand man to Colin Powell, which, as you know, he was the one who lied on behalf of the United States, knowingly lied to do the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. Yeah. He says that. The reason the U.S. will be in Afghanistan for the next half a century is not because of Kabul or state building or even fighting terrorists. It is because it is a centrally located power to oppose China's One Belt, One Road initiative. And just like you said, Mike, um, the CIA using Islamists to fight China in Xinjiang. This is something even the National Endowment of Democracy, which is a known CIA front organization, tweeted proudly that they have been funding them for years, since like 2014 or something. Yeah. Go ahead, Arash. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very, very good point. And this is, again, like one of the numerous questions that keep me up at night. I don't get much sleep with all these questions that keep popping up in my head. Uh, and all these podcasts are doing late at night. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, why when the Belt and Road Initiative is kicking off and America has 
the most strategic location in the entire Eurasian, you know, if, if we assume to be a, a continent, the Eurasian continent, you know, it, Afghanistan is next to Iran. Uh, Afghanistan is near to Russia. Afghanistan is next to Pakistan, who is a nu nuclear superpower, uh, near to India, who's a nuclear superpower, and, and next to China, who is a nuclear superpower and has this Belt and Road Initiative that is going to challenge the he hegemony of the Ameri or US empire. Yeah. So why then would it choose to depart this critical geopolitical location uh, at this time? Uh, so what I do see from Taliban is uh, a kind of almost an insistence on China to bring the Belt and Road Initiative to Afghanistan and say, you know, we, we want you to invest in Afghanistan. The, th the thing to remember is that China since 2001 uh, has been the second biggest investor in Afghanistan and since 2014 has been the sole biggest investor in Afghanistan. So. It has spent a lot of money uh, on different projects and trying to stabilize Afghanistan. Uh, even uh, the Buddha statues that Taliban blew up, China worked towards restoring some of that. And so they have done a lot for the country. And when I do hear Taliban uh, asking China to please bring your Belt and Road Initiative over here, it does ring historical bells or alarm bells rather. Because when you look back at 1978, when the communists came to power via coup, they brought in some positive policies, uh, which I'm sure the Michael Parenti article that Comrade Mike is going to reference uh, after I'm done talking will touch on. But what it misses is how rushed and aggressive some of the social policies were. So in a country that was quite conservative, uh, quite religious, uh, putting up busts and statues and banners of Marx, Engels and Lenin and changing the flag, the traditional flag that is red, green and black into completely red, alienated and disenfranchised large sections of the population. And this is what caused then Hafiz Lamin, who orchestrated the coup of 1978 by himself, without the knowledge of the senior members of the PDPA party. Uh, what he ended up doing was asking the Soviets and leading, the, you know, begging and insistence of the Soviets to come in and help Afghans out with their military. Uh, against these Mujahideen, that they weren't called Mujahideen as such then, but these rebel forces that were causing problems in the country. And the Afghan government through Hafiz Lamin actually asked the Soviets 18 times to intervene in Afghanistan with their military. And the Soviets uh, refused because they knew like the consequences of this. Eventually, towards the end of 1979, when the government had become so weak due to Hafiz Lamin, and the policies that he was implementing, that this guy Hafiz Lamin was in talks of forming a coalition government with somebody called Gulbuddin Hikmatyor, who is a known warlord at this point in Afghanistan, and his nickname is the Butcher of Kabul for the crimes that he committed post-1992 fall of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan and the taking of the state by the different Mujahideen factions and the infighting that ensued between them. He was the guy that committed the most heinous crimes and committed the most atrocities. Uh, so he's known as the Butcher of Kabul. Even back in the 1970s, he was fairly notorious and he was fairly uh, infamous in the country. I think when he was in university, he killed the Maoist forget his name, but his last name was Sukhandon, and he escaped the country into Pakistan. He went into exile there, and 
So Hafiz Lamin, this alleged communist, is trying to form a coalition government with a known extremist fundamentalist. So yeah. at this point, the Soviets were like, well, if this happens, then the potential for the kind of extremist fundamentalist ideologies could spill into our Muslim-majority republics of Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, uh, and Uzbekistan that border Afghanistan to the north. So, you know, they had a quick emergency secret meeting and it was decided that Hafiz Lamin had to be taken out and they needed to, to go into Afghanistan, stabilize the government. And, you know, they assumed it wouldn't take long, maybe 18 months tops, because they thought, you know, we have the Red Army, you know, we're a nuclear superpower. You know, these guys, uh, a bunch of farmers will take them out and will go back. And the Afghan government, once they stabilized, can take care of everything itself. And this is the critical mistake they made because the material conditions that Hafiz Lamin's action, uh, actions in Afghanistan brought about were such that the US now had the grounds to give the Soviets, you know, their own Vietnam, as Big Neil Brzezinski, the grand strategist for the American empire, uh, famously said, you know, we needed to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. And they did. They kept them in Afghanistan in this quagmire that once they were in, they couldn't get out because if they got out, then the Afghan government would potentially collapse. And then all the fears that they went into Afghanistan with could potentially come to fruition and this extremist wave could go into the Muslim-majority Soviet Republic. So bringing all of that back to China is the Taliban insisting on China coming into Afghanistan when Afghanistan isn't even as stabilized as it was in the early 80s. It's a very, very big risk for China. And China is not stupid. China's lived through this Soviet intervention and the mistakes that Soviets made, in fact, China uh, was on the American and British side, unfortunately. This is one of the reasons why they, they have problems in Xinjiang today with fundamentalists and extremist insurgents. And um, you know, they've, they've largely atoned for their mistakes and, and the actions that they've taken in Xinjiang to de-radicalize those folks uh, has been successful, certainly more successful than dropping bombs on regions, which is the U.S. strategy. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think China would go into Afghanistan without assessing the risks. But at the same time, you know, as comrades have mentioned already, Afghanistan is incredibly rich in resources, at mm -hmm. least uh, three trillion worth of natural resources, known natural resources exist in Afghanistan. So the lure of that may be that, you know, we, we'll go in, we'll set our projects up, you know, we've, because they've, they've already got the CPEC with Pakistan and the Pakistan Economic Corridor, which has been successful, even though, you know, they, they have faced uh, attacks and some Chinese officials have been killed in uh, Baluchistan, for example, Baluchistan province in Pakistan, uh, but they will assess the risks and see, see if it benefits them. And I don't think the Taliban would do anything to China, but there are other groups affiliated closely to Taliban and also groups that are against the Taliban that exist in Afghanistan. Like for the past 20 years, at least 21 international terrorist organizations have existed in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and just, just a quick note on the Taliban themselves, they're not a monolithic uh, entity either. There's a, a significant fraction of factionalization within the Taliban. You have the Doha Peace Talks Committee or faction, and you also have the Haqqani faction. So the Haqqani faction are more hardliners, whereas the Peace Talks, uh, Doha Peace Talks Committee or faction, 
uh, the relative moderates or progressive relative to themselves because it's a very low bar for the Taliban. I always say the only way for the Taliban is up. They cannot possibly get worse than what they've been for the past, you know, 20 odd years, five of which, you know, they were in power the past 20 years, you know, allegedly leading the resistance. So there are big differences within the Taliban. And this could be another thing that can cause internal struggles. And if the internal struggles or contradictions are so big, that could ignite into a civil war, which will not be uh, in the best interest of anybody. And Russia, China and Iran certainly don't want to see that. And this is part of the reason why they met with the Taliban delegations and Taliban delegations promised them security of their borders and promised China that the ETIM terrorist group were not going to infiltrate into Xinjiang. Xinjiang is the province that actually borders uh, Afghanistan. So it won't be directly through Taliban, but affiliated groups and other terrorist organizations certainly do have interests to, to wage wars or attacks against China, against Iran, against Russia, and also against the um, Central Asian countries that border to the north of Afghanistan. So I do want to, um, I mean, thank you for all of that. Like, there's a lot of points in there that I definitely want to touch on. Um, and I want to get to this Parenti article since I did tease it. But I, at the risk of sidetracking us, I want to address something that Lima said earlier. You know, this supposed bungling of the pullout of Afghanistan now. It seems to me that it's, it's kind of just common knowledge that the U.S. was controlling the government that had been in Afghanistan since the U.S. invaded um, in the early 2000s. Am I right in assuming that, that, you know, the U.S. was controlling that government the way that the U.S. was training all the armed forces and everything? And what, what was that government called? Was that like the Afghani provisional government or something? What did they call it again? Well, originally, right after the invasion of, of the country and the toppling the Taliban within a month or two months, um, yeah. there was the aftermath in which the puppet regime or the original caretaker government came about was through the Bonn conference in mm-hmm. which they kind of handpicked Hamid Karzai as, as like their bonafide face of this new democratic liberal government that's the antithesis of Taliban and everything backwards yeah. and uncivilized but even I think his first term like formally as a president started in 2004 I think that's when like they had a, a whole constitution set up elections etc so they mm-hmm. definitely you're absolutely right in uh, confirming that that the that government was completely um under the absolute direction um, Mm -hmm. of the U.S. And the only way it could sustain and maintain itself was through the help of the U.S. We can, and a a clear illustration of that is how quickly it fell apart as soon as the U.S. chose to kind of usher in another actor that will de facto and now de jure form take its place. So you're you're absolutely correct in that regard. Well, so then my question is, do you think that the U.S. pulled out or chose this moment to pull out of Afghanistan now because the U.S. feels like it has enough control or at least friendly relations enough with the Taliban that they're going to be able to get whatever resources they want. They, get, they can get whatever they want out of that country. And if that is the case, what does that say about the Taliban's relationship with China? Um, like, I guess I'm just trying to figure out if the current government or the government going forward in Afghanistan under the Taliban is going to be more friendly with the U.S. or China. And what influence do you think that had on the timing of the pullout of Afghanistan now? I mean, Iraq can definitely expand on this after I'm done, but it kind of uh, depends with regards to Taliban's relationship with China. Just recently, in the past couple of days, there's this really big, uh, amongst numerous mines and extractive projects, but this really big copper mine right outside Kabul called Ainak Mine that's been like in the works for a few 
actually a decade, close to a decade, but hasn't been fully operationalized. And the fighters or members, no longer fighters, I guess, political actors of the Islamic Emirates of Taliban were doing like a tour of the kind of half-built mine recently uh, because they're in direct conversation with China to get that up and going, uh, similar to uh, very similar projects that China is investing in across uh, Africa in particular. And the interesting aspect of this mine, and I'm sure it might be the same for other projects that China does have in the country, is that it's not going to be like a fully usurped thing the way Americans operate across the world, where, you know, through imperialism or other mercenary forces, they have complete control and of... Um, of a particular place in its capital and resources. I think China has maybe 20 or 25% uh, ownership of that mine. The rest would be the Afghan government. So uh, in light of, of uh, the Americans still holding on or freezing billions of dollars in, in assets and capital that belong to Afghanistan uh, or the Afghan state anyway, uh, and they still have it, they still refuse to release that. I mean, they've kind of allowed for independent humanitarian aid maybe worth around $300 million, uh, mm. but that's nothing. Yeah, uh, so in the light of that, and the fact that the Taliban is, its first and foremost priority right now is to establish itself as a state. Um, I think that's why a lot of, uh, a big reason why its PR campaign is so big on the aspects of leniency, inclusion, et cetera, because it needs to mobilize the state and its people to legitimize its own governance aspect. So the Taliban is a very unique position where obviously the Americans have, uh, through IMF or World Bank, frozen these assets as a way to control and maneuver. Uh, the Taliban make sure you know it's on a tight leash also opens up options for the Taliban to to be in, in conversation with other states like Iran and like China in particular which has established projects in the region so um, as Iraj was mentioning before it's it is kind of a sticky spot for the Chinese in particular because of the vastness and the time and energy that it is spending and has spent on the Belt and Road Initiative particularly in Afghanistan so uh, with regards to pull out it's hard to say I mean <laughs> it's hard to say why they kind of picked this option we're trying to make sense of it ourselves at the moment even the agreement of the Doha negotiations was so sudden and and the fact you know that there was this framework very deliberate and very detailed framework uh, by the way just kind of sprung on everybody saying this is the new framework for peace uh, part of the reason may be the U.S. assessed you know which group uh, would better service interests you know it spent trillions of dollars in Afghanistan and in supposed infrastructural and governance uh, supports that you know, has yielded no, little to no results, yeah. aside from filling the pockets of one of the most corrupt regimes uh, in the country's history, at least. You know, it might, part of the reason might have been that it's hedging its bets on against a group where against uh, whom they haven't made a lot of headway and but still have historical ties to and, you know, kind of cultivate or, or pend out this framework. But um, it's difficult to say in terms of timing, but all of it's definitely within the scope of imperial interest for the Americans anyway. So no matter which way you look at it, from which vantage point, uh, the imperial aggressors really haven't lost out on anything. Yeah. Um, they're just kind of controlling the field from afar and through a different framework or a different maneuver. Where it's hard, it's hard uh, right now to say it's kind of everything's kind of opaque at the moment. The dust hasn't settled, but the Taliban itself uh, for trying to 
sustain itself is going to have a lot of uh, a lot of issues on hand. Iraj mentioned the factionalization, which is kind of illustrated in the recent announcement of its caretaker government and caretaker cabinet. Whereas before, um, you know, there were conversations that former former imperial lackeys. Uh, such as Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah, who used to be the CEO of the country <laughs> and then was uh, responsible for the reconciliation or high council of the reconciliation and was very closely affiliated to former warlords and a former warlord, uh, Hikmat Yar, were initially meant to be in some type of role or position in some capacity. In this new caretaker government, we've seen that's definitely not the case. It's all Talib members, but... Uh, hardline Talib members, members who have, were uh, very intricately involved in the fundamental founding of the group, such as Mullah um, Hussan, Mullah Yaqub, and the Haqqanis. Uh, so we see that they're not even uh, Doha representatives. For example, the deputy, one of the deputy vice emirs, uh, Mullah Bradad, was the original, one of the co-founders of the group, and everybody pretty much thought that he was going to be this new prime minister, but he's not. Uh, so it's interesting to see. And then there were also recent uh, rumors flying about that, you know, he had been killed by the other factions in the group in a, in a disagreement. And he had to kind of come out, come out publicly, do an interview and disavow all of that, saying everything's OK. So it's really hard to hard to say what's happening and, and uh, kind of get a clearer picture. But um, all of, there's a definitely a bigger design in play. It's just... Uh, not super clear right now we can just use some of the historical patterns that we've seen um, over the years with regards to the cultivation of different reactionary groups the mujahideen and remnants of their group to kind of guess at what the next ploy or step might be i want to get to you or raj and see if you have anything to expand on um, but i saw that jaron had something and i just wanted to say like you make a really good point lima that you know even when the u.s loses it wins in these kind of situations when it intervenes in foreign countries like this and Again, just harping back on what we talked about in our Nicaragua episodes, it's like the paradigm that's set up, it's when they're doing this, even if they just cause instability, they still win. It's like it always works out in the U.S.'s favor. Um, but go ahead, Jaron, and then we'll go with Raj. First of all, this is super enlightening, just even just hearing the depth of convolution going on in Afghanistan, because, you know, when you listen to Western media about this, it is so not in depth it is so black and white and it addresses literally none of the nuance and i think one of the contributing factors here is the united states is also in a very strange position right now and i think that part of how it's conducted itself in the past five or six years has a lot to do with hubris you know the post-war period the united states has been on top it's every coup it's had has been for the most part successful it's been just a juggernaut against everything and just in the past five years, we've seen coups in Latin America fail. We've seen AFRICOM losing influence, especially in East Africa, because of you know, Chinese investment initiatives. We saw oil tankers go from Iran to Venezuela, and the U.S. couldn't do anything. That would not have happened in the 70s or 80s or 90s or even the early 2000s. So I do think that like you know, when we're trying to figure out why now, I think that there's a lot of reasons for sure, definitely a lot that I don't know about. But, you know, the emperor is, is wearing no clothes at the moment. The United States is faltering, you know, it, the role that it's become comfortable in since the conclusion of World War II. And, you know, they, they may think that they have the Taliban on a tight leash, and perhaps to an extent they do. But I do think that they're underestimating not only national autonomy, the Taliban itself, or the people, whether or not they align with the Taliban. but also the influence of other countries and other economic initiatives that rival things like the IMF. 
all in all, though, like, you know, I think to really just put the nail in the coffin, Donald fucking Trump was president for four years and almost got elected again. There's there's a certain just sense of disillusionment, overconfidence and insanity that's currently running the imperial core, which was, in my opinion, the natural progression of things. And it's yeah. definitely spilling over to into the the corners of the empire that we never should have been in in the first place. Yeah, no, real quick, um, just like how we're pointing out so many ways that history is repeating itself or at least rhyming in Afghanistan currently is you have the son of the founder of the Mujahideen begging the CIA for funding to help fight the Taliban. And you have the New York Times writing articles, manufacturing consent in support of the new Mujahideen against the Taliban. So quickly, uh, just uh, off that point that Bod made, that article that is called Ahmad Masood, and uh, Comrade Bod quite rightly points out that his father, Ahmad Shah Masood, was one of the founding fathers of the Mujahideen movement. And Ahmad Masood, the article that he wrote in the Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, like, they, you know, when you say these things out loud, it's like, what planet am I living on? And I think yeah. that uh, sticking with uh, talking about planets and empires, uh, this guy, Ahmad Masood, finishes off the article with saying, please, Joe Biden, you are our only hope. And I was thinking, this sounds very familiar. Lord. <laughs> I've heard this somewhere before. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Like, I respect the grift. Like, <laughs> you were like, how can I pull it at, at these people's heartstrings that are reading this op-ed? And um, yeah, in terms of the Taliban and uh, the control that the U.S. absolutely wants to maintain, as Comrade Jaron said, you know, Taliban aren't exactly on a leash fully. They can change. They can be swayed by the likes of China, uh, Russia, perhaps even. So the U.S. wants to maintain control uh, of the country, especially economically. So one of the things that it's done, as Comrade Lima was mentioning, is frozen the state's uh, assets that are in foreign banks, especially American banks, which are the majority because they control the country's economy for the past 20 years. And so on Monday, they announced that they were going to give some aid to Afghanistan, $65 million worth, through the benevolent organization called USAID that totally doesn't have any kind of history of uh, being at the forefront of destabilizing nations or anything like that. Uh, which was Just interesting. That British sarcasm again. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I can't. No, no, I love it. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and the the other thing is that now with Colonel uh, Lima and I have talked about this, like that now that the you know quote unquote international community is no longer directly occupying Afghanistan, anything that transpires there is not going to be their responsibility. They can't be held accountable for. Let's say that, you know, there's some insurgents that make their way into Iran and they cause some kind of attack. Iran can't turn around and tell the U.S. then what the hell are you doing? You know, you're in this country, you're supposed to be protecting these borders. They can ask the Taliban and, you know, the Taliban uh, haven't exactly uh, secured the country fully as such yet. As I mentioned before, you know, there's... There's some pockets of war uh, or fighting battles taking place. And even within the Taliban, you know, that they aren't exactly a united force that they were many years ago. Uh, so if anything happens uh, through Afghanistan in any country within, uh, you know, the region or even outside, the international community can no longer be held accountable for. And going back 
and looking at history, as uh, Comrade Ward was saying, you know, you're seeing sometimes history repeating itself or rhyming. And this is exactly true. Uh, you know, when you look at, as you were mentioning, uh, Comrade Mike, that there was the Angles article that talked about the British occupation of uh, Afghanistan. And eventually in 1919, uh, a guy called Amon Lahon was uh, able to win Afghanistan's independence from the British. And his father-in-law, uh, somebody called Mahmoud Tarzi, he was a very enlightened uh, individual, greatly influenced by the Ataturk reforms that were taking place in the post-Ottoman Turkey and by the Bolshevik revolution that had taken place uh, very close uh, to Afghanistan as well. And he wanted to bring a kind of modernization to Afghanistan and some social progress uh, alongside it. So Amon Lohan married Mahmoud Tarzi's daughter called uh, Surayo Tarzi. Uh, and together, Amon Lohan, Surayo and Tarzi Sr., they set about modernizing Afghanistan and bringing in, for example, the first constitution, creating a national assembly and called the Loya Jirga, which still exists today, and giving rights to women. No longer was uh, the burqa, the face, uh, the, the full face covering uh, compulsory. Like women had the choice, autonomy over their body, what they wanted to wear. And uh, so the kind of secular foundations of secularism in Afghanistan was established very early on in 1919. Uh, now, there was a dinner trip that Amon Lohan and his wife, Queen Surayot Tarzi, attended, I believe, in France. And the French president greeted both of them and, uh, as you do, kissed Queen Soraya Tarzi's hand. And the British were there with the cameras taking pictures. And, you know, these pictures were then distributed in Afghanistan and saying, you know, like, look, this guy is selling out his wife. He's selling out his honor. Like, he's going to do the same to your wives, to your daughters, and your honor will be wow. lost and your country will be lost. So what it then did or ended up doing was empowering the more conservative, fundamentalist side of that society, because Afghanistan is like any other country. During the 1920s and even today, like it was largely a feudal society. And mm -hmm. despite 20 years of occupation, have the modes of production, have the productive forces, relations of production changed since many decades ago? Not dramatically. It is still largely a, a feudal society. So when you have a feudal society like that, you will have the kind of conservative and fundamentalist elements that we saw then and we continue to see today. So the fundamentalist section of Afghanistan, they rose up and they ended up overthrowing Amman Khan and all the progressive measures that were put into place were now gone completely. And the guy that overthrew him only lasted nine months before the British brought in their guy, de facto. And he ended up overthrowing this guy, and then he became king, then he was assassinated. Then his son, who was 18 years old, he became king. And then he ruled for 40 years. Now, towards the end of uh, his tenure, he did implement uh, more progressive reforms. And it was mainly done through his cousin called Dawud Khan. And Dawud Khan was, was somebody who... Uh, was uh, fairly close to the Soviet Union, and he uh, brought in a lot of projects from the Soviet Union, such as building the Solang Pass and bringing a lot of trade and bringing some progress to, to Afghan society. Uh, eventually, though, he, Daud Khan, ended up overthrowing his cousin, Zahir Shah, who was the king who ruled for 40 years. And in 1973, he declared the very first republic of Afghanistan. 
And it's at this point that the likes of Ahmad Shah Massoud, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, and somebody else called Burhanuddin Rabboni, they wage a jihad. The very first jihad in Afghanistan was post-1973. Dawood Khan wasn't a communist. Dawood Khan was more aligned with the national bourgeoisie of the country, but he wasn't a communist. Yet, you know, these fundamentalist extremists, they said Dawood Khan has become a communist. He's become closer to the Soviet Union. He's become an infidel or an apostate, and he must be overthrown. And they were being supported across the border by Pakistan. Because going back a few years, Dawood Khan, whilst he was prime minister, uh, had caused some border clashes with Pakistan in the 60s. And Pakistan were unhappy that Dawood Khan was also uh, working closely with Baluchi separatists and Pashtun separatists that uh, lived in Pakistan. So they wanted to control, to gain better control of their neighboring country. And they, they sought out these extremists. Vijay Prashad calls them thugs. Uh, so I'll, I'll uh, borrow his word for them, uh, these thugs, uh, who were unknowns at that point, relative unknowns. And then they gained more uh, infamy by trying to make a coup against Dawood Khan post-1973, which failed. And incidentally, this, the coup was exposed by the communists in Afghanistan, uh, by the PDPA. And so these guys had to escape, go into exile in Pakistan. And eventually Dawood Khan became more entangled with Western capital as he pivoted away from the Soviet Union and from the Eastern Bloc and more towards the Shah in Iran. He was a puppet of British and American imperialism towards Saudi Arabia, closer to Pakistan and, of course, closer to America itself. And he became quite repressive in Afghanistan as well, brought in the kind of a police state that the Shah in Iran had at the time. So then in 1978, was that me or did we lose him? Did everybody lose? Uh, I, think I think we, we lost, lost him. Irash. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it's his connection. I never know if it's me. It's usually me. It's the CIA. Okay. <laughs> Probably. The CIA is shutting us down. Damn it, Langley. Fucking Langley listeners. <laughs> Y'all are in the States, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely. CIA? Yeah, it's the MI6 because uh, Iraj is in the UK. And he's the only one. <laughs> Five eyes. They all work together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I watch Boris Johnson's tuning in. <laughs> I don't even know what the context was, but there was a screenshot of like a news clip and it said on the Chiron on the bottom, it said Boris Johnson, spokesperson for the Taliban. And somebody I kept, remember I said that. And died. I was like, what even was this? Like, why, why did that even? And I guess it was just like a news station screw up or something, but still funny. Still uh, fantastic. Pretty hilarious. Because the actual spokesperson for the Taliban is quite suave, like very um, articulate. Wow. So I'm sure he'd be very insulted. I mean, their meme game has been on point. Like, that's, that's pretty good. Probably one of the yeah. most disappointing things was seeing a bunch of leftists, like, tacitly, if not explicitly, supporting the Taliban, simply because oh, they were fighting. And it's like, it's weird. It's like, what do you think you're... They're not leftists. They're not, like, principled people. Like, they're not somebody you want to support if you're a leftist of any kind. But it's like, I For guess, sure. even if you wanted to express the most critical support because they fight the U.S. and you don't like the U.S., it's like, still, I just don't... I don't get, like... I mean, the only way I can see doing it is in, like, the most trollish kind of aspect just to rub it into the u.s that they lost something but like even that i don't know like we were saying like even when the u.s loses they, they win but exactly would you have more that was the slowest hand raise 
I shared one of the Taliban memes. It was fucking hilarious. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it was a meme. I like a good um, meme. It was the like the video of them working out in one of the uh, abandoned military U.S. military gyms. That was like, funny. That was funny. With, uh, the Rocky theme song playing, and then it like highlights of um, different news articles of like Taliban making gains in Afghanistan, <laughs> like all these different like articles saying, "Oh, Taliban making gains," and it's just showing them working out. I mean, them on the cars. I don't know if the thing was real, but them in the bumper cars was really funny. Like, oh, it's real. That's the yeah, thing that's is real. like, I think people, um, hear so sensationalized things about the Taliban. They're like ordinary. No, not that I'm like absolving them or anything, but they're Afghans. So like ordinary, especially the fighters, they're just ordinary young men and boys, and they haven't had access to a lot of state infrastructure for a long time. So a lot of the things, especially when they see such lavishness and excessive wealth of areas they're capturing, it's you know, it's like. A kid in a playground, for sure. No, I, I picture that that painting of the Bolsheviks wandering into the Tsar's palace after the revolution. Yeah. Same kind of thing, like yeah. calling them the Bolsheviks. No, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, but yeah, Iraj and I were, uh, yeah, we're fighting for our lives on Instagram a lot because of a lot of these really awful takes and comparing them to like Ho Chi Minh and the PAVN. PAVN. Oh, yeah, it's been really upsetting. That's pretty cringe. It's really cringe. Super cringe. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people do that pendulum swing shit where they'll, you know, it's the first two or three years of them realizing the U.S. is fucked and then anything against the U.S. becomes, like, justified. They just do a full 180 sure. and it's, you know. Yeah. I can understand that, but when people take the time to explain the history and you're still like, no, and then they call us gusanos, it's like, okay, well, this turned, this table oh, turned very quickly. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty bad. Take. bad. Oh, I think it's back. Oh, yeah. Hey, Raj. How are you, comrades? Good. We were saying you were, uh, you were targeted by the MI6 because you were the only one that went out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the FBI person that's watching this secretly is like, this is too much information. Yeah. <laughs> this is too I much. can't let this happen. <laughs> um, I can't remember what it exactly was that you were saying when you got cut off, but you can just sort of pick up on the last thing that you remember. Sure. I can fix it all in post. Sure. Um, so Afghanistan uh, was ripe for a popular revolution, similar to the one that took place in China, like a class uh, collaborationalist uh, revolution. National bourgeoisie with however many proletariats they were and peasantry overthrowing the now oppressive Dawood Khan regime. Uh, but instead, an opportunist like Hafiz Lamin comes along and makes a coup that changes the entire narrative of the communists coming into power in Afghanistan. Because it was a bloody coup, he executed the entire family of Daoud Khan, like not leaving a single person alive. And eventually, when you get to the Parenti article, they did bring in some good uh, measures. And this was the platform that they were campaigning on for years, the Communist Party. So this was to be expected, whether it was done through a coup or through a popular revolution, these policies would have been implemented. The difference was that when the opportunist Hafiz Lamin took control of the state, you know, he had control of the army, you know, the most powerful apparatus within the state. He could execute whatever he wanted. And the policies, the social policies in particular that were you know, rushed and very aggressive uh, in Afghanistan, but not complementing the material conditions of the country. For example, you know, they did say women have right to education or girls have the right to education. But in conservative areas in, in the country, they were dragging girls from the parents' homes who wouldn't allow them to get an education. 
instead of explaining to the parents how it's beneficial for the family if their daughter gets an education, they were forcing them or just forcing the daughters out of the homes and taking them to school. So these kinds of things, as well as having shop doors be painted red, have banners on shops be painted red, this obsession with the color red being everywhere. There was a point in Afghanistan where red cloth could no longer be found because Afghanistan had run out of it. Everybody was trying to use it in red paint as well. So yeah, yeah, like these things were alienating people and disenfranchising them. And people were thinking like, is this what communism is? Because, you know, they were promising something else for the past, you know, few years. And now this, and even land reforms, they made, you know, land reforms give land to peasantry, which was good. But that peasantry for generations was told that their landlord had divine right over the land. And when the peasants were given the land, any money that they made from it, they would give the majority to the landlord whose land was expropriated by the communists. But, you know, they would send the money to the landlord no matter where the landlord was, if the landlord was in Pakistan, if it was, he was or, or she was in UK or wherever, they would just send the money to them. So, you know, these were the problems. And, and eventually when Hafiz Lamin made so many mistakes, deliberate or otherwise, was close to forming this coalition with Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, a name that just keeps springing up every single decade. It's like he's he's always been alive at this point yeah. and involved in all the like turning point events uh, in Afghanistan's history. Somehow, when he was about to form this coalition government with this guy, you know, the Soviets at that point were like, no, like we we can't have this. And as I said before, Hafiz Amin was leading the calls for the Soviets in, to bring their military into Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, 18 times the Afghan government asked for Soviet military interventions and the Soviets refused. Eventually they came in and the Mujahideen that were being trained in Pakistan were, you know, now mobilized and fatwas or religious decrees were being issued from places like Pakistan that this is now a holy war. This is now a war for the Muslim Ummah or the Muslim international community. This is a just war to go and fight against the infidels because Muslim land has been taken over by infidels. And if you die in this war, you, you know, you go straight to heaven and you get X number of virgins and uh, you know if, if we succeed then you know what we've done has been in the way of God and so the reactionary forces that took out Amanullah Khan in the 1920s late 1920s were now being mobilized many decades later by the same imperial powers albeit through you know proxies and through lackey states like Pakistan mm-hmm. and what eventually ended up happening though after a few years of Mujahideen fighting against the Afghan government and fighting against the Soviet Union was that different factions of the Mujahideen were fighting against each other for superiority in different regions. And they were also being touted by other foreign countries. So whereas all the money for the Mujahideen project at the start was going to Pakistan and Pakistan was distributing it to the different Mujahideen factions towards uh, the mid 80s, these different Mujahideen factions had cut out Pakistan as the middleman. So they were receiving all the money. And the Pakistani state, which is run by ISI, like the CIA equivalent of Pakistan, they were not happy. So it's at this point that the foundations for the Taliban uh, group are being set up. So they wanted to identify some deeply religious, very, very young guys, so they could be easily manipulated and people who have not been educated, who have not received 
formal education as such and who are firm and deep believers in fundamentalist Islamic interpretation of the religion. So they found two, two parties within the Mujahideen that they thought, okay, like these people in these two parties tick all the boxes. And it was through these two parties that they found their guys. I think initially there was like 65 of them. And by the end of the 80s, it was reduced to like 35 because some had died in fighting and others may have left. But it was the 35 that were there at the end of the 80s, start of 90s, that eventually became the leadership of the Taliban. Guys like Mullah Omar, guys like Mullah Brodar, Al-Khanzoda, uh, you know, these were the guys that then created the Taliban and, you know, they were, they were being trained by somebody called uh, Colonel Imam, a one-star general and uh, an ISI Pakistani military guy. And this is from his book called Ohan Posh, which means ironclad. And he's talked about this uh, quite extensively. And in the 90s, when the Mujahideen finally came into power, they were just fighting against each other. There was no control especially in Kabul, the capital. And if you Google Battle of Kabul, you can see the kind of atrocities that went on then. And there's a lot of footage of people in Kabul saying like, is this what your jihad was about? Like crying as they hold like dismembered family members and such in their arms and saying like, what was this jihad? Like this isn't in the, in the way of God. Mm -hmm. You're killing God's creations. Uh, and you know, these guys were fighting against each other. Kabul was in flames. And one of the generals in the Pakistan army had famously said, Kabul must burn, Kabul must burn. And the fire that had engulfed Kabul was so out of control that Pakistan needed to come in and put it out. And to do that, then they mobilized the Taliban and Taliban came in and uh, they took the country uh, fairly quickly again. Uh, but this time, you know, they had a lot of backing from ISI directly from Pakistani military. This is again from Alhan Posh, Colonel Imam's book. And they entered Kabul and, you know, people cheered for them. People were very happy that they came in because for the past few years, they were being inflamed by all these atrocities and human rights violations that were taking place by the Mujahideen. So they welcomed this new group. And once this new group came in, though, they were a lot more brutal than the Mujahideen, but in their own way. So, for example, they were deeply uh, against the Shia because they belonged to the Sunni sect. So they were deeply against right. the Shias and in particular the Hazara community. They were deeply misogynistic. <laughs> they cut off 50% of the population from society, which was the women. Now, they couldn't get an education. They couldn't work. They had to wear the full face covering, the, you know, the full veil, burqa. And again, we saw similar things to what we'd seen post uh, Amon al-Lohan. Uh, Just real quick, uh, Arash. Sure. Were they um, the Diobandism? Diobandi, yeah. Okay. Diobandi. I just found out about that today. I just was curious. Yeah. But continue. Yeah. So Diobandi had become like, Diobandi started off as a relatively progressive movement for Muslim youths in India during the British colonial period to give them some empowerment because Muslim youths were lagging behind Hindu youths uh, in India at the time. India at the time, you know, the countries of Pakistan, Bangladesh and India were all called India before the British decolonization and partitioning of that country into pieces. And this is what these empires notoriously do. They partition all these countries when they leave. Nice. 
Sorry, um, just that Jaron had mentioned exactly that, like on one of our recent episodes about how empires will come in and purposely balkanize an area to more easily conquer some people. Um, Jaron, go ahead and then we can get back to Iraj. Yeah, this is kind of just, it's, it's not a statement, it's a question relating to all this. And because, again, this, this is an overload of awesome information for someone like yeah. me who is very aware of concepts surrounding it and not so aware of groups or individuals or specific historical events. Because, you know, apparently there's just so goddamn many. Um, but, and I'm really not trying to lead with this question, but... Given the feudal nature of the politics of Afghanistan and, you know, aside from the wars that have contributed to that, do you think things like, you know, the Durand line, which I think was made by, you know, British handlers through the proxy of India, and then also the Soviet Union drawing relatively, you know, just arbitrary lines through Afghanistan, um, Tajikistan and uh, Uzbekistan, because to my knowledge, Joseph Stalin is the one that actually drew those. Do you think... How, if at all, does this contribute to the continued splintering of people that we see there today? It's a good question. I mean, the Duran line certainly plays a big role. You know, the British tactically divided uh, the Pashtun community with drawing that line across Afghanistan and what was at the time British India. So they, you know, if you look at it from a Marxist perspective, you know, they want to create contradictions so that they can then take advantage of those contradictions for themselves. And as Comrade Lima mentioned, you know, like with the article regarding Engels, this was uh, written at the time of the Great Game, which was the so-called game played by Tsarist Russia or the Russian Empire against the British Empire for uh, control over Central Asia and Asia as a continent in general. So the Tsar and the British Empire, they split Afghanistan to the north as well, in an area called Badakhshan, Badakhshan province. They split that between the two of them, and they said this is going to be, a, Afghanistan as a country is going to be the buffer zone, and the sphere of influence that we're going to have is going to be across this side of Badakhshan, which is today in Tajikistan, and this side of Badakhshan, which was Afghanistan, British-controlled Afghanistan at the time, and Afghanistan today. And in terms of the Soviet Union drawing lines through Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, yeah, I mean, what you have to remember is the project that the Soviets embarked on, which was the first proletariat state or the working class state, was unlike anything that has ever been done. You know, there was no blueprint for it. So they were kind of doing things on the fly, so to speak. And you know, they were using dialectical materialism, historical materialism as much as they could. You know, Stalin talked about nations and trying to divide these regions into nations. And inevitably, they were going to make mistakes. And what's happened post the fall of the Soviet Union is that those contradictions that existed across these different Soviet republics have been amplified by nationalist elements, bourgeois nationalist elements. Uh, and also they will be, in my opinion, moving forward, uh, be amplified by the empire itself. And they will draw from history because, you know, like, for example, the Tajik state and the Uzbek state. This is even before the Tsar came in, oh, sorry, the Soviet Union came in during the Tsar period. They did not get along and, you know, there was some troubles there. So I can see in the future, as we've mentioned before, you know, history, if not repeating itself, then certainly rhyming because those things from the past will be brought forward. And, you know, they could say an area like Samarkand, which is in Uzbekistan, say, you no, know, that belongs to Tajikistan historically during this period. It belonged to the Tajiks, blah, blah, blah. And 
about this many Uzbeks live on the border of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan on the Tajikistan side, but they want to be part of Uzbekistan. Like, let's get this moving. Let's make some protests. And even in these countries, for example, Tajikistan, the president is somebody called Imam Ali Rahman, who has been in power since, since the fall of the Soviet Union, pretty much for the past few decades. So in a similar way that we saw the Arab Spring, you know, against the likes of Gaddafi, especially, or Bashar al-Assad in Syria, Gaddafi in Libya, you know, they said, oh, these people have been here for too long. We need to depose them, bring democracy and bring elections, etc. And people did have genuine sentiments when they were protesting, certainly in significant parts, because even during the color revolutions in Eastern Europe, people were protesting because they thought they could get the democratic changes that they wanted whilst keeping all the benefits of those old societies. But that's never the case. Whenever these societies fall, you get the worst of both worlds. Yeah. And so with Tajikistan, this, you know, this guy being in power for decades, you know, I can certainly see like a color revolution and protests being initiated against him and there's many things that, that he's done and many mistakes and you know, many corruptions that have taken place that could be exposed and amplified further. Add to that, you know, the fake news that Donald Trump always talks about, you know, add fake news and propaganda to that and get people riled up against him. So there are, yeah, certainly like, uh, like you can never take history away from looking at these conflicts. History plays a critical role, whether it's Western colonizers, imperialists, or whether it's through Soviet Union or China or anybody else, like history certainly 100% plays a significant role. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to cover. This is great for me because I love to hear all the particulars of this. Because again, like Jaron, like I have a general idea of the concepts involved and like the major players of all this, but like to hear all the details of it really is enlightening. Um, but I wanted to just take the last 15 minutes or so to see if you guys have any, Lima in particular, if there's anything that you want to get across to our listeners, any major points that you'd like to get across to everyone um, that you think that, that would be important for them, you know, as a leftist, especially to hear. And then you guys can plug any social media or anything that you guys would like to plug. So go ahead, Lima, if there's anything that you want to tell everyone. Yeah, cool. Just to build a, uh, build a little bit on the last point as well. Um, the Duran line in particular is specifically contentious yeah because of the imperialist history and kind of the imposition of it um but also the way in which that border deception has functioned particularly um when the mujahideen was an active group uh and it's really the porous nature of that border intentionally so that's been causing uh, a massive issue for afghans in particular because of the split of pashtuns and, and baloches baloches but um since the inception of Pakistan's role in the cultivation of the Mujahideen and the Taliban, um, that state in particular has very intentionally made the nature of that border porous in order for people or groups that are reactionary to be super transient and and seek hideouts on, on Pakistani territory uh, when needed or when necessary and then kind of go without any, any type of accountability or on the Pakistani state's part. So I would say that's an important factor to consider when thinking about the Durand line in particular, because yes, those borders around modern day Afghanistan has shifted. You can talk about like Afghanistan's history goes back to millennia. So you can talk about different dynasties and empires and the Khurasan era that those things have always shifted, but the Durand line in particular has always been very contentious because of the way it's been operationalized um, in efforts to 
keep continuing sabotaging and undermining the Afghan state uh, and government. So I think that's a very important distinction to make when talking about borders in particular in that region. Um, I don't know about general statements, I guess. Uh, it's kind of a very volatile time right now. Uh, but one of the things, and I was kind of mentioning it when Iraj was uh, gone momentarily, is that the, a little bit of uh, issues or, or struggles we've come across as, as Marxist Leninists engaging with other leftists on the topic of Afghanistan and uh, putting all this effort and time in because it's what we do and what's what we've always done in terms of um, introducing the history and more specifically the geopolitical history of our country in order to make sense of this uh, madness, really, because it's so hard to distinguish groups or one actor from another, particularly because of the extensive history. To put all that effort in there, but then also be dismissed uh, at some points as as either counter-revolutionaries or gusanos or whatever you have you. Uh, so our, our, I guess my, I can only speak for myself, and Niraj can definitely like, elaborate on this or say something completely different. But um, is to work in tandem to really, you know, put in put into practice the the methods of dialectics and historical materialism when analyzing Afghanistan, and when we're trying to do that, not to dismiss the history of the country because. Ethnicity and linguistic linguistic differences have always been very contentions for us as a people, and that's something we're already trying to address, uh, both within the homeland and the diaspora. But to have the added uh, sort of burden on us to defend uh, our identity and our history um, in a community that's always been or is meant to be, uh, you know, in solidarity with all who are under forms of oppression or different forms of colonialism and imperialism is an added sort of issue or challenge for us at this time when we're trying to figure out um, how we can best be in solidarity with our people in our homeland. And it's it's difficult to to kind of conceptualize what practical steps can be taken when things are pretty much, uh, you know, in no one's control except except the key players who are who are kind of dealing out the cards. But uh, that's, I think, one like one tangible ask we can make um, and something we can work on as as a movement, as a, as a movement of peoples, as a community who are who we are always trying our best to be in solidarity and um, uh, with with anyone who's kind of facing these issues or, or uh, kind of falling, dealing with the fallout or continued fallout of imperialism and imperial legacy. So that's just kind of my overall statement, I guess. But Iraj, over to you to say something completely different. I don't know, but. <laughs> don't listen to her. She's a gusano. Cancel yeah. comment. <laughs> <laughs> I was born to be canceled. I'm good. <laughs> No, just uh, yeah, everything that Comrade Lima just said, like I'd echo and second. Maybe if you have a few minutes, I'll quickly finish off like the part of history uh, regarding Afghanistan when the Taliban came in. Mm -hmm. Just I'm sure your listeners uh, would want to hear what, what went down. And, you know, one of the things that doesn't really get talked about is what happened to the last communist president of the country. And, you know, he, he actually changed many things like in tandem with what was happening in the Soviet Union and the Perestroika and Glasnost policies of Gorbachev, liberalizing the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. He was doing the same thing in Afghanistan through the Afghan president at the time. He was uh, Dr. Najib, Mohammad Najibullah. And yeah, he actually, Dr. Najib changed the party's foundation, took away the Marxist Leninism and you know, made it a liberal party changed its name from PDPA into Homeland Party. 
and even brought in Islam and made the country, you know, a theocracy essentially because Islam was part of the constitution now and it was mm. part of the state. So, you know, he, he made many, many leeways to the Mujahideen and said, like, look, like you can even come into the government. You know, there's these many posts and seats open for you to work with us. Like you wanted the Soviets out. The Soviets left in 1989, Feb 1989. The last forces pulled out. You know, the infidels are no longer here. Like, come to Kabul, we'll, we'll sit, we'll talk, and we'll discuss our problems rather than fighting over them. And, you know, nobody took heed of that. And so eventually when the Mujahideen came in, he, was, he tried to escape the country, but he couldn't. And then he went into uh, the UN consulate in Afghanistan, and he was there for the, for the next few years until the Taliban came in. And when the Taliban came in, they told him, you know, like, come out now, like, you know, the Mujahideen are gone, the country's secure, like, we're going to work towards peace. And, um, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do what they did. So he trusted them. And he came out. And he was brutally tortured to death. You know, when, when I was reading the details, the gruesome details of his torture in uh, different books, you know, like, I was feeling like I'm gonna faint. Uh, it, it was so extreme and so inhumane. Uh, and, you know, this is what the Taliban did to a communist. And, you know, just to I was going to say, just real quick, I was going to say, when you said you were going to tell our listeners what happened to the last communist president, I was immediately thinking of uh, Gaddafi, because that's the one that's <laughs> like most recently on my mind. And I still will not, I know that there's a video of it and I will, I refuse to watch it because it's just, I know it will break my heart and oh. I don't want to see it, but it's like... Yeah. I mean, and just in general, I don't need to see that kind of shit on the internet. Like, I'm not a fucking teenager looking for that extremist shit anymore. But, like, I immediately knew it was going to be that same kind of thing because that is what happens to any communist leader who makes any kind of improvements for the people when reactionaries take over again. But please continue. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Gaddafi, of course, you know, like you and your listeners will know it wasn't a communist, he, you know, when they did that to him. He was, you know, his line was uh, Islamic socialism. Yeah. And what they did to him, the way he was brutally lynched was so extreme. And it, as you said, it was recorded. And so was Dr. Najib's. His was recorded. This is how sadistic you know, these guys were. They recorded the full ordeal and its tapes were being sold in Pakistan. And because in Afghanistan, they actually outlawed music. They outlawed film. They outlawed filming. They outlawed television. Anything that wasn't to do with the interpretation of Islam was outlawed. And, you know, they destroyed a lot of cultural archives, music archives, video archives, changed the name of the national radio, uh, Radio Afghan into Shariat Radio, I believe they called it, or Islamic Law Station. Uh, and, it, you know, it's just reciting the Quran and uh, giving religious talks. So, you know, this is, again, something that I've not seen any other country do change its culture, this disavow its culture completely and destroy everything. And uh, so when we talk about the Taliban being a proxy force, this is what we mean. This is neo-colonialism, you know, the last stage of imperialism, as uh, Kwame Nakamura's written about. And uh, this is, you know, the, the Taliban project is a, a Pakistani project and Pakistani state project and uh, in tandem with Saudi Arabia and in tandem with the US and with UK because through the fall of the Soviet Union and bringing in the Taliban in Afghanistan, what the US tried to and still is attempting to execute is this uh, gas pipeline that starts off in Turkmenistan, which is a former Soviet Republic, 
goes through Afghanistan, passes through Pakistan, and eventually ends up in India. It's called the Tapi gas pipeline, and it's still not completed. But in 1996, when the Taliban came into power, Unical, uh, which is, I believe, now part of Chevron, hmm. they sent their executive, or their representative, rather, uh, Afghan representative, to meet with the Taliban. And you know, this guy was none other than Hamid Karzai which was the first uh, president of Afghanistan once the U.S. invaded. So yeah. all these things are interlinked and uh, you, know, you, can't, you cannot separate Afghanistan from the events that took place in the Soviet Union. Uh, as we talked, you know, since the very inception of the Soviet Union, it's been involved in Afghanistan's history and Afghanistan in Soviet's history right to, up until today in the former Soviet Republic regions. So, yeah, like I just add the... If you're analyzing regions, if you're analyzing history, look at it from a broader perspective, look at it from the interests of Western imperialists who never have you know, the best interests of the people in mind, whether it's you know, people outside of their borders or inside their borders. You know, these, these countries are falling apart domestically. You know, UNICEF had to step in and feed tens of thousands of children in the UK last year, unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like the, there are major problems and there's major fighting that's taking place within the bourgeoisie in both countries. Uh, you, know, the, you know, this is clearly seen by the election of Donald Trump. Even the likes of George W. Bush were like, you know, we don't want this to happen again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you have the super wealthy families in the U.S., like the Rockefellers. And then you, you have the super wealthy aspiring to be like Rockefellers who are, you know, fighting a- against each other. And with the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, we can clearly see this, that all the weapons manufacturers are clearly unhappy. You know, they're pushing their lobbyists and their representatives in Congress to call out Biden and, you know, ask him why did he leave? You know, meanwhile, that section of the ruling class that the Democrats represent, you know, they represent the Trilateral uh, Commission that is a Rockefeller Foundation and they want to operate more from the shadows and you know they favor coups and sanctions and you know maneuvering through the CIA whereas the other section the likes of Prince uh, Davos, uh, Betsy Davos and Trump and the likes of Murdoch you know they back Pentagon they want direct war they want to push uh, you know American chauvinism and show the military might and yeah, they'll rub it in your face. <laughs> exactly. There, there is this struggle between the two of them. So, you know, these contradictions in late stage capitalism are certainly being amplified. And as a global internationalist group of people or comrades, we need to be aware of that. And what you guys are doing here is brilliant because, you know, you are bringing these voices to the listeners and raising class consciousness. And this is critical at this moment uh, certainly since the fall of the soviet union you know we've been told that history has ended and you know this is this is all we have now we try the communist experiment it's failed (laughs) i knew you were ready i knew that was coming (laughs) i hate that guy yeah i was waiting for it (laughs) um but no i mean i think i think that's actually a good place to to wrap it up i think it actually touches on something that we say a lot which is that Nothing, I don't think we're really telling anybody anything that isn't readily available. Like all this stuff that you've told us, as, mm-hmm. as detail-oriented as it is, and I'm going to have to listen to this episode a couple times just to really absorb everything that you've given us tonight. And again, they just don't tell us anything in the U.S. Like if you are raised in the U.S. and you go to school here, 
all they tell you is the U.S. are the really big, strong, good guys who go into every country and we save everybody and we rescue them from the evil communists and we give them freedom. And it's like, that's what they tell us in our fucking school here. And then the news isn't any better. The news just gives you the same thing once you get out of school and it just reiterates that same message. And to be able to hear it from somebody else's perspective, it's like, it shouldn't be that hard to find. It really isn't that hard to find. But the point is, you have to go look for it. And it's unfortunate that that's how it is here. But that's what life in the Imperial Corps is really like. Um, but go ahead, Jaron. And then we'll just uh, we'll do plugs and we'll wrap it up. And I'll get you guys to tell our listeners about any um, social media that you guys have or any other platforms that you want to direct our listeners to if they want to find out more about you guys and more information. But uh, what did you have, Jaron? First off, I, I have to jet here in just a second, too. But so you're, you're telling me that it's actually better to have a podcast with factual information than just you know pontificating on whether or yeah. not the covid vaccine is yeah. altering my dna <laughs> now bill gates man it's a bill gates wow g chip bro <laughs> well it was really nice to meet you guys i gotta take off but thank you, thank you so much for sharing your insight it it yeah, really nice means a lot take care jaren just uh, plug your website before you go Oh, yeah. So you can find me at jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Jaron Dagan. That's J-A-R-O-N-D-A-G-A-N. I had to change it because I'm frequently getting uh, attempted doxing going on. So It must be those uh, violent Antifa. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I really, that last video I made about fascism pissed off some Trump supporters. I bet, dude. Yeah, dude, that was I showed that to everybody I could. I mean, all the fascists that I know. So that's probably why I got a lot. I'm not going to go into it because this is a different episode, but you wouldn't believe the amount of people who are like there are fascists on the left too. go fuck yourselves. And uh, that's such a shitty conversation. But anyway. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I'll see you later. Y'all take care, bro. All right. Go ahead. uh, Lima and Araj, go ahead and plug anything you guys would like to um I'll, I'll go very very quickly just something that i wanted to add is comrade Dima said you know america spent trillions of dollars in afghanistan now imagine if america spent that money in the u.s you know you have crumbling infrastructure you have uh, i believe over 1.5 trillion dollars of student debt uh, you don't have even accessible healthcare, let alone free healthcare. you know universities yeah. hospitals schools the national curriculum, all of these things have completely been gutted for decades, thanks to neoliberalism, thanks to Reaganomics and Thatchernomics, where I am in the UK. So, you know, we need to hold, uh, you know, our governments in these countries as accountable as we can and not let them get away with spending money to kill people, you know, halfway across the world that results in people dying in these countries because the money no longer is here. And we need to ask serious questions on on these lines. In terms of where you can find me, you can find me, I'm mostly active on uh, Instagram. Uh, It's estarbak, E-S-T-A-A-R-B-A-C-K. And you can find uh, the collective that Lima and I and a few other comrades co-run called Halk Collective. You can find that tagged uh, on my profile and you can just will take you to that page and uh yeah thank you for having me on comrades and i guess i'll let comrade lima continue
Yeah, no, that's basically um, all I had to say in terms of uh, where you can find me. I'm also mostly active on Instagram and my handle is Saket. That's E-N-Q-I-L-A-B-I underscore S-A-A-K-E-T. And likewise, as Iraj mentioned, Khalq. Khalq is something we kind of, a project we've been working on for about a year and so, and it's to bring Afan and Iranian revolutionary minded, like at least like-minded people um, from across the world to kind of give the perspectives we've been giving here on this podcast but in more detailed posts and yeah that's a joint collaborative project uh, that we spend quite a bit of time on so thank you so much for having both of us on here and i'd love to come back so yeah please thanks. do i mean yeah. i'll uh, i'll talk to uh Raj, you know i talked to him on instagram obviously that was mm. the entire reason that i had the idea to have you guys come on is because Raj just has such like his posts are great on instagram and that's where i know him from so yeah um <laughs> So, yeah, I would love to do this again. Um, and then if you guys wouldn't mind, just what is the other podcast that you're going on so our listeners can check that out, too? Uh, we are not sure yet. Okay. But we will be, uh, but it's with some comrades uh, from Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe if I get a link from them, I can forward it to you guys. Okay, I'll put it in the show notes then, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Okay, cool. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, Ward, go ahead and plug your uh, your pages. Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. And I'm on Twitter at Warlawley, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And our podcast Twitter is Twitter slash Turn Leftist Pod. Um, Cosper's Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And I'm on Instagram at turnleftist1312 and the backup turnleftist1917. And everything else related to the podcast, including the Discord or the Patreon, you can find at our link tree, link tree slash Turn Leftist. And uh, I think that's about it. So, yeah, just once again, thank you guys for all the great information. I really appreciate you guys coming on, and I'd love to do it again sometime soon. Thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely informative and very enlightening. Thank you so much, comrades. I appreciate you having us on and yeah, giving us a platform where we can hopefully you know, raise awareness uh, on a broader scale and garner some interest that you know has kind of dropped since the cameras have stopped recording the airport in Kabul yeah. from the news. So thank you for still continuing this and having us on. Thanks, guys. Cool. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Later, comrades. Have a great night.